This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, Black women from across the French Empire were instrumental in shaping the global liberation movement. And Claudia Jones, a Black communist woman from Trinidad, put her mark on Black feminist politics. But first, the African People's Socialist Party has been around since the 60s. In a few days, the party will hold an important plenary session. Chairman O'Malley Yeshatela outlines his party's overall worldview. The basic worldview revolves around our understanding that the world that we live in, this whole imperialist world, came together as a consequence of the enslavement and dispersal of African people throughout the world and the colonization of the vast majority of the people on the planet Earth by Europe. And that this created a parasitic economy that is recognized as capitalism. And that today what we see is the stresses of capitalism being made manifest all over the world with crises abounding. And so it is a time where the obvious problems are there for us as a people and for the world. This crisis may manifest the wars, the threats of wars, the greater repression, the economic sanctions against different people on the one hand. But then on the other hand, with the crisis, uh, incredibly significant possibilities that we need to be able to take on. And that requires making some distinctions. And a distinction is what in the hell are we struggling for? Is it just to make life better under imperialism in the various places to which we have been dispersed? Is it about some ambiguous anti-imperialist struggle? Or is it possible for us to conceive of an actual struggle to take power in our own hands, to destroy social systems, to take power in our own hands, that is to say, to fight for the conquest of political power, state power, in the hands of the international African community under the leadership of its working class. Well, the Democrats and most black people in the United States wind up voting for the Democrats. The Democrats are framing the situation as one in which Donald Trump represents some unique and very particular and critical crisis. Well, whoever is at the helm of the imperialist system, uh, at the moment the crisis makes itself manifest, always is credited with being uh, responsible for that. I remember when Ronald Reagan was responsible for it, and at, at different times George W. Bush was responsible for it. And to the extent that Trump presides over this crisis-ridden system at this moment and has put forth solutions that obviously benefit him and a sector of the ruling class in contention with other sectors of the ruling class, then we can say, okay, Trump is responsible. What we're looking at is a crisis-ridden system. And the system would not have a matter who was presiding over this. We saw Obama at a particular time presiding over the system. And we saw the Bushes over time presiding over the system. When I say the Bushes, I mean 
going back to George Herbert Walker Bush, the CIA president, the guy who became the president of the CIA and presided over when he was vice president of the spread of cocaine and drugs all over the world while in the process of fighting against the heroic peoples and other areas who are trying to win their freedom from U.S. imperialism. So right now, the most recent culprit that we can point to is Donald Trump. And of course, Donald Trump puts his brand on everything. And therefore, how this bourgeoisie, the imperialist world is attempting to deal with this crisis has his signature all over it to the extent that someone else is not holding his hand, we can say it's his signature. And in the immediate time frame, how does the African People's Socialist Party propose to deal with the situation? Our fundamental strategic is to really build and strengthen the regional components of our party throughout the world. That is in the Caribbean, that is in Africa, where we are extremely active, particularly in Southern Africa and and growing so in West Africa, that's throughout Europe and in the United States as well. So we have created a strategy that we are really pushing to implement, and we call it the regional strategy, where the organizational task of our party is to build on the ground, wherever we are, in every community, every nook and cranny, and to actually create a competent, capable organizations that led by and occupied by cadre, by forces who have been in this whole process of the history of our movement, been shaped, molded, struggled with, and what have you, to provide leadership on the ground. We believe that we have to make every inch of earth uh, where African people live, something that is hostile to penetration, whether it's by a gentrifier as it's characterized in North St. Louis or whether it is any other imperialist finish any place in the world, including South Africa. So the thing is that to really decentralize the party's apparatus under democratic centralism and share out much more the responsibility of organizing concretely on the ground, turning every African community in the world where we can do it into a bastion of anti-colonial hostility, people who are conscious, communities that are conscious of being engaged in a struggle against colonialism. That's our primary task. And in the process of doing that, then we'll take on some of these issues to the extent that we are capable of doing it, that make themselves manifest. The very symptoms of the sick social system, we'll fight there. We'll demonstrate against the attempt to deconstruct the Venezuelan project. We'll fight against the wars that they are threatening against the people of Iran and what have you. But our primary objective has to be to build an actual capacity to destroy this social system. And we won't be taken off task by any other thing that's presented to us. The African People's Socialist Party has been around a very long time, but it's more popularly known as the Uhuru Movement. Yeah, the Uhuru Movement is something that we've come to be known as in part because of the slogan demand that we adopted some time ago that came from the Kenyan Land and Freedom Army fought against the British in the 1950s, and that that demand slogan was Uhuru. That was the demand, and that was the thing that terrified white settlers in Kenya and much of the world, this slogan demand. And so we adopted that slogan demand, Uhuru, and we did it because we think it's critical also because Uhuru is Swahili, and it means freedom in Swahili, 
and we think it's also indicative of our connection to Africa, our African roots, and the fact that wherever African people are, we brought it with us because we brought every contradiction that was imposed on Africa that has been dispersed all around the world. We carry it with us, whether in the United States or any place else. So that's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of the Uhuru slogan demand is that we have created various kinds of organizations, committees, institutions, and what have you, everything from radio stations to newspapers and various other kinds of institutions, economic entities. We created a solidarity movement of white people, Europeans who work against colonialism under the leadership of our party. And all of these things are characterized as part of the Uhuru movement. And so in many places, it's really interesting because even after we've only been in a place for sometimes a few months or a couple of years, and even the bourgeoisie or neo-colonial puppets refer to us as the Uhurus, and that's all right. <laughs> Your party's national headquarters is in St. Petersburg, Florida, and you've got chapters around the country. But your most recent focus of intense attention has been St. Louis. Yes, and we are actually in the process of moving our headquarters to St. Louis. And St. Louis, the population in St. Louis is under extraordinary pressure. And it's true all around the world, you know, because you look all throughout this United States and you see what people are commonly referred to as gentrification, the destruction of our communities, the removal of huge sectors of our population. And this is something that happens every time there is a need to satisfy some of the economic interests of the system that cannot occur through simple expansion outwardly. So they come back to our communities, they rig the economy and economic institutions in such a fashion that functions even like a counterinsurgency, which the primary strategic aims of counterinsurgency is a population and resource control. And so this happens to us all over. But St. Louis has been really hard hit where You've got the North St. Louis, where the highest concentration of African population is located, and you have hundreds and perhaps thousands of abandoned properties. And the city created this sand bank where it has accumulated a lot of its properties. And part of what is done is enhance this economic quarantine. So there are a few means by which people can earn a living within the communities, and there are no supermarkets typical of large African communities concentration of African communities, and they have taken land, 99 acres of what have been designated for this national global spatial intelligence agency. Now, there's already one there, but this is going to be the biggie, the headquarters, and this is one of the most secretive in many ways. It's well known, but what it's about is not well known, but it's an intelligence organization entity that handles the satellites, the phones that we're on now something that they are responsible for, like they created the, what you see with the Google Maps and et cetera, and they are responsible also for moving drones and missiles and things like that against peoples all around the world. So what they've done is they've taken immediately something like 90-some-odd acres of land in North St. Louis, and they've pushed out a large sector of the population, and they're using the power of eminent domain, and then they are acquiring some 900 other acres surrounding that so they can put this NGA campus smack dab in the middle of the African community, and then it's going to have its own police force, and then the other 900 acres that are beyond the campus of 90-some-odd acres will function sort of as a sanitized area in terms of where people will be living. 
All of this, of course, is going to impact the African community in a very serious way in terms of even the remaining people being able to live there because of what it's going to do to property values. And they place this instrument, this entity, in the middle of the African community that's going to be responsible for killing and massacring people all around the world. So they've created a certain kind of competition to some extent by people who call themselves contractors and things like who want to get the contracts to build the killing machine that's dispersing our community. So that's a huge problem. That's a huge thing. We've taken that on. We've created in St. Louis, we've changed an entire African community, something like a 10,000 square foot building that had been abandoned. We rehabbed, turned it into a Hooter house there. We've got four properties next to that and turned it into a space. We will have a market space there. We have a space for entertainment and what have you. We've changed the entire community. So we're encouraging even others who are not a part of our Huda movement. They are beginning to spruce up and bring their businesses, Africans bring their businesses there. We've got a huge entity where we are creating a bakery and cafe and we are also doing a workforce kind of a training center. So for Africans who get out of prison, they can come and work in this cafe, and we've purchased something like four flats where they will be able to live while they're doing this. So we're transforming, doing a major thing there. We've got no work, no help from any of the politicians or anything like that, and we're still you know, struggling to make it happen. And in fact, some of the politicians are concerned about that. At the same time this is happening, the city of St. Louis did a stealth election a few years ago that would reduce the number of wards they want to reduce that by half, which means that instead of there being 24 older persons, there will only be now 14 older persons, which means that they will cover much larger territory, which means that it would take much more money to run for office, which means that there's a greater distance between the people and the people who are supposed to elect them. And it also means that the corporate big developers and things like that will have even greater influence over the political situation there. So we're fighting all of that in St. Louis right now. It's a major, as as you said, we're really intensely involved in development there. And we can see incredibly important things happening. The African People's Socialist Party, I think it's fair to say, considers itself to be a vanguard party, although you may use other terminology. But you also engage in coalition politics. Yes, we are a vanguard party. And I know that that is a term that became problematic for some folk after the 1960s, but it just speaks to the kind of organization we are. And it speaks also to what we call on from our membership, which doesn't mean that all of our memberships, all of our members live up to that all the time, but that's what we are. We are a vanguard party. And in fact, the theme of our seventh Congress was vanguard, the advanced attachment. And this theme of this plenary is vanguard up, the unity between theory and practice. So, you know, the saying goes that the conversation is to keep the commodity on the block. Everybody's got one, but there's not so much what you say, you believe this, and how does that relate to what you do, what the practice is? And so for us right now, the whole question of theory is critical question. What is your philosophy? What in the hell do you believe in? To what end is any struggle that we're involved in as a people? And how does that inform the practice that you're engaged in? And whether you have some theory that's being implemented. Is it just theory as a concept, but is it something that can actually be implemented in the world? So that's really important. So we do talk about being vanguard. And yes, we believe in coalition. We believe that we have a responsibility. And the thing is, like the most important work we do in terms of coalition is the Black and Black Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparation. 
And as you know, this is a coalition that's gone on 11 years of existence, of extraordinary existence. When we started this coalition, no one would have assumed that we would have been around for more than a year or two to carry out a particular action. We formed this coalition September 12th, I think it was, in 2009. At that meeting in September 12th, we just said we were going to have a major demonstration, a national demonstration at the White House against the Obama regime that was going to be happening in November. So we created the coalition September 12th. We said we're going to have a national uh, rally and march on the White House and a conference coming from that in November. And that was extraordinary. And it was extraordinary for a number of reasons, the short time that we had to make that happen. And also it was extraordinary because this was the first national demonstration that had occurred against the Obama regime. And that meant that we had to go upstream against a lot of forces who many of them call themselves communists and nationalists and the rest of that, but they had embraced the Obama regime in a deep, a profound, sloppy lip lock that made it difficult for them to even conceive of that. And there were hysteria in some areas of our community. When I say hysteria, I mean real ecstasy, ecstatic hysteria. What did you call that thing when religious people go over these experiences? But that was what we went up against. But it was a successful mobilization. It was prescient in the fact that we anticipated, we knew who this guy was. We knew that he was imperialism just in a black face. And we had no confidence in imperialism just because of the complexion of the one who presided over it. So that was an amazing thing. And this coalition has existed now, has existed now going on 11 years. That was O'Malley Yeshetela, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. The French colonial empire stretched across much of Africa, Asia, the South Seas, and the Caribbean, and has not been fully deconstructed even in the 21st century. Annette Joseph Gabriel is a professor of French and Francophone studies at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. She's written an important new book titled Reimagining Liberation, How Black Women Transform Citizenship in the French Empire. I think these women were in some ways just really ordinary people who were just fed up with the injustices and inequalities of colonial rule. And so there are seven of them in the book, spanning from Martinique. So I look at Suzanne Cézio and Paulette Nardal. And then I move to Central Africa and look at Jeanne Vial and Eugénie Ebouetel. Ebouetel, I think, is sort of beneath the shadow or, or sort of works in the shadow of her more illustrious and well-known husband, Félix Eboué. So they're both from French Guiana and find themselves in Central Africa as colonial administrators, which is an interesting position for them to take. And then we sort of end with Awaketa and Andre Bluin in West and Central Africa, and then Eslanda Robson from the U.S. who travels all around the world and also finds herself in French Central Africa. And the reason I'm so fascinated by these women is that despite the different geographies, right, that they come from, the different geographies that they spanned, the different places where they traveled, they were particularly committed to doing work that was transnational in scope. And that's one of the things that I admire about them is that they understood from the beginning that what they were fighting against, white supremacy, was global in scale and in scope, and that their resistance and then their subsequent sort of imagining of new worlds 
also had to be global in scope. And then the other thing that I really admire about them is just how great the sacrifices they made were. I think that it's a bit of a pity that those sacrifices are no longer really recognized, but they made huge sacrifices anywhere from being incarcerated in concentration camps during World War II, to having their passports taken away, to being sentenced to death by the state, to going into exile. They were ready to give their lives for what they believed to be a truly fundamentally important cause, which was freedom and liberation in the Black world. I don't think that those are sacrifices that should be obligatory, but the fact that these women were willing to make them is something that I really admire. Yes, you speak of these women and what they did, how they behaved in a world that was threatened by fascism, but they lived under French colonialism, and they made the connection between colonialism and fascism as two kinds of manifestations of white supremacy. Yes, absolutely. So when we think about the connection between colonialism and fascism, or when we think about fascism as colonial chickens come home to roost, we think about writers like the Martinican writer Amy Césaire, who makes that argument in his discourse on colonialism. And what I'm arguing and what I show in the book is that there were also women who were making that connection, and they were making that connection in ways that highlighted the important roles that women had to play, that women were already playing, particularly because they were experiencing also patriarchal domination embedded within colonialism and fascism. And so, yeah, they made these connections in really fascinating ways. And that's why you'll find, for example, someone like Jeanne Vial, who was a spy in the French resistance. So an African woman who was a spy in the French resistance in Marseille, who ends up going to prison for her activities, starts a women's magazine once the war is over, once World War II is over. And she says, what we've been doing clandestinely, we now do openly in the light. And she's thinking in that moment about fascism, her fight against the Nazi collaborationist regime in France, and how that fight now transforms into a fight against colonialism once she becomes elected to the French Senate. So right along there with Aimé Césaire, these women were also thinking along these lines. They were making these connections and they were arguing that gender also plays a role in how the intertwined oppression of colonialism and fascism are felt by women in the French colonies. Well, lots of French people opposed fascism and opposed the Pétain government that aligned itself with German fascism. But what about folks on the left who opposed fascism but didn't agree with these colonized subjects on the evils of colonialism? That was a struggle. That was a struggle for a lot of the women who had placed their faith in the French Republic. And so for them, fascist France that collaborated with the Nazis was a different France from the French Republic. And they believed that the restoration of the French Republic, the restoration of the values of liberty, equality, fraternity would ensure or bring about their liberation. 
And when that didn't happen, it became a real kind of existential and ideological struggle for them. Um, it was particularly painful for them to, you know, for example, for those who were elected in the French uh, National Assembly or the French Senate, to find themselves making the same arguments for freedom, this time on behalf of the colonies, and to hear those arguments be shut down by their compatriots on the left. And so that was a particularly difficult moment for them. And I think what happens in the book is that you start to see a transition over time. Once you get to someone like Awakita in Mali in the 1960s, she's no longer thinking about the French Republic as the guarantor of liberty because she's been let down also by the French left. And so she ends up thinking along the lines of independence as the only way to ensure real freedom and liberation. Now, in the beginning of this conversation, you mentioned neocolonialism, right? So the failures of independence will subsequently also become apparent. But in that moment, right, we begin with that hopeful moment that French citizenship would be the thing that brings about freedom. And then that moment sort of transforms into disillusionment. But the ideas, the fundamental ideas of freedom remain for these women. The paths that they choose start to evolve over time. So this experience with fascism actually had the effect of further radicalizing these women, causing them to say that just being more French is not enough. That's not freedom. Yes, absolutely. So the myth of assimilating into France, into the French Empire, was just completely shattered for them. Being French in the way that France defined it would not bring about their freedom. Hence the title of the book, right? For them, their argument was, then let's transform what it means to be a French citizen, that I can claim to be an African woman, I can claim to be Black, I can claim to be Antillian, I can claim multiple geographies and spheres of belonging and still be French in a way that doesn't just sort of make those different belongings additive but in a way that actually transforms Frenchness fundamentally, even for white French people that we think of as quintessentially French. And so that's what happens. I, I think that radicalizing happens for some of the women, for others it doesn't, but for all of them, certainly questioning what Frenchness and French citizenship means was at the core of the work that they were doing. They were like, if France is arguing that we all simply need to be more French to be civilized, then let's completely explode those categories so that more people can also have access to the things that French citizenship guarantees without having to erase their fundamental identities and other communities to which they belong. Now, these women that you study come from very different circumstances and backgrounds. Some of them are in metropolitan France, but others are deep in the rural backwaters of the colonies. Yes, absolutely. And I think it was so important for me to be able to consider different perspectives and different lived experiences under colonial rule, because I think that we tend to focus on the areas that colonial rule itself privileged, on the areas that were more resource-rich. So we'll think a lot more about Senegal, for example, on areas where France had a more long-standing relationship. So we'll think about a place like Martinique, for example. But then what happens to the Central African Republic, where people also lived and died under colonial rule? What happens to the women in rural areas in Mali, 
who were also ardently on the forefront, on the front lines of fighting against colonialism. And more importantly, what happens when we bring these different spheres together? And I think what happens in the book is that we end up with different understandings of what liberation and freedom could look like, particularly based on these different lived experiences. So yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I tried to cast as wide a net as possible and to see what are the different blueprints that the women set out for us, because we're also fighting today these same injustices and inequalities on as many fronts. And so it's important to have as many blueprints as possible to have this composite image of what freedom could look like. And what do these anti-colonial and anti-fascist experience tell us today when most of the previously colonized world is now in a neo-colonial state and people are calling politicians fascists left and right in the United States and in Europe? Yeah, that's such a crucial question. I think my one big takeaway from all of these women consistently is solidarity. There was no sort of clamoring for independent or sort of an individual leadership role. There was no working in isolation. There was no emphasizing one geography over another as though these things are not interconnected. So to have solidarity in all spheres, right? So women were trying to work in solidarity with other women. They were trying to think about solidarity across racial and cultural differences. And ultimately, that solidarity, I think, is what enabled them to have this more expansive vision of citizenship. And I think that's one thing that we can take away today. One of the things that I find, I think, a little bit concerning are certain narratives and discourses that aim to further certain kinds of divisions, right? So, for example, that we're going to work for Black liberation, but that that's separate from immigration, for example, right? That these things are so closely intertwined. When we go back to, you know, what I said earlier about fascism being colonial chickens come home to roost, that's exactly what we're seeing still today, that what countries do in their role as imperial powers always comes back to harm their most marginalized and vulnerable citizens and onwards. And so I think that one of the things that we can take away today is the absolutely crucial nature of solidarity across differences, be they racial, gender, class differences, because ultimately the intertwined nature of these forms of oppression will require robust and intertwined forms of resistance. And yet there are lots of people who are screaming fascism at one another in the West, but far fewer who see imperialism as being a kind of fascism. Yes, exactly. And I think seeing the connection between those two things is so important. One of the people that I write about is Suzanne Tiver, and she's a thinker, a Martinican thinker that I admire so much because she writes in one of her private letters, right? So she's sitting in Haiti. This is during World War II, and she's looking at the destruction and devastation around her, right? When I say around her, I mean in the Caribbean, I mean in France, throughout Europe, right? You have this war that's happening on this global scale. And she writes in her letter to a friend and she says, I want to be lucid. That desire for lucidity, I think, is something that 
it's no longer as much in the foreground because right now we're focused on speed and urgency, particularly in this moment where we have a lot of movements that are taking place via social media that are taking place online that require lightning speed in terms of responses and reactions that sometimes that doesn't leave room for lucidity. For Suzanne Tedel to prioritize being lucid over anything else is for her to say that a clear-eyed understanding of the problem at hand is fundamental for arriving at a workable solution. And for her, that clear-eyed understanding was to see imperialism in the Caribbean as very closely intertwined, right, with what's happening throughout the world, is to see imperialism and fascism as so closely tied because, you know, I keep using this metaphor of chickens come home to roost, right? But what Emmett Isel writes in Discourse on Colonialism is that essentially what Europe never forgave Hitler for was turning onto the white man the same kind of violence that Europe had been turning onto people of color throughout the world, right, through its colonial enterprise. And I think that that's something that remains crucial to see today, that even if we talk about citizenship, even for people who are fighting for and desiring citizenship in countries that are imperial powers, it is absolutely crucial to remain lucid about the limits of that project, about the limits of the national project in a country that is an empire. You know, and I think that once we begin to be honest about those limitations, then we start to have that more robust and composite understanding of ways to fight against discrimination on all fronts. Because in fighting for the rights of countries that are at war, for example, right, but to fight for the rights of people that are targeted by imperial wars, we end up also fighting for liberation of people within the walls of the countries that are targeting. So it's really important to think about the intertwined nature of these struggles. Otherwise, we always end up with very partial visions for liberation. Yes, and a very flawed solidarity. Exactly, exactly. Fascism is profoundly anti-intellectual, but you seem to be saying that lots of the folks who consider that they are fighting fascism adapt a habit of work that's more like the fascists than it is liberatory. Yes, Brendan, I think that's what we get when we have these sort of partial projects for anti-fascist struggle. I'm really intrigued by your formulation of fascism as anti-intellectual. I think that's absolutely spot on. I'm thinking about a colleague who does similar work, Dr. Mam Fatunyan, who has a documentary called Marianne Noir, where she interviews a number of Black French women. And one of them talks about her experience living in France under Sarkozy's presidency and about the moment where she lost her language. Right. She was just unable to produce language because that very fundamental form of expression of expressing her intellectual work. She's a filmmaker was attacked by what she felt to be a fascist regime, right? what she felt to be or at least to be akin to a fascist regime. And so, you know, those attacks on intellectual work. And I don't mean by that kind of productivity, the way that universities as institutions define them. But I mean my true intellectual work in terms of conversations and discourses across different fields, across different methods, across different ways of thinking. Those attacks against that kind of intellectual work are fundamental for fascism to advance its project because it means that we stop asking the kinds of questions that we need to ask. 
and we end up expending energy defending that which should be fundamental, right? People's right to live, people's right to live, not harass, people's right to freedom, right? To, to very basic things. And so I think that, you know, that kind of intellectual project still needs to be at the heart of the things that we do. Yes, and I was thinking very specifically in the current era of the beginning of the so-called War on Terror, when George Bush demanded that people make a choice. It is either you are on the side of them or us. That's the kind of solidarity he was demanding, solidarity with the United States government. Yes. And that kind of binary, right, in terms of solidarity, and we hear that narrative still today, right, especially whenever we were in situations where the United States declares war, which happens with alarming frequency, is that that sort of solidarity becomes this binary reduction between us and them. There are only two possible camps. There are only two possible ways to see the world. That kind of reduction is, to get back to your initial formulation, so fundamentally anti-intellectual because it flattens nuance. It flattens different kinds of communities. And so to come back to the women who were working in this moment, right, they were also working in this moment where the world was being asked to see everything in this sort of binary mode. So us and them, fascism versus freedom, except that who was on the side of freedom was actually really quite nebulous. It wasn't always as clear-cut as the narratives made it seem, because we've looked at, for example, the intertwining of fascism and colonialism, you know, and so to reduce the world to those dichotomies, I think, is again, advancing that fascist project of siding with destructive power because it's inevitable. Of course, you're going to side with us. How do you say I side with them? When them has been constructed as this particularly dangerous, threatening menace, right, on the outskirts waiting to invade your country, waiting to take away your peace, waiting to take away your jobs. And so to already begin by refusing that binary, I think is crucial. So when I come back to someone like Suzanne Tizel, for example, she was constantly talking about thinking about multiplicity about thinking about the Caribbean, for example, as a space where multiple influences and cultures and histories and ways of understanding the world coincide so that we don't end up with that flattened binary. And that's the vision of citizenship that all of these women had, that citizenship wasn't singular, it wasn't either or, and it wasn't us or them. It was always composite. It was always made up of understanding connections and solidarities across differences in order to build coalition. A lot of the women I talk about think about peace a lot because they are writing in wartime. And I think that's something that maybe has fallen out of our vocabulary a little bit because we've come back to the language of fighting, right? Resistance and fighting. But embedded within that language for them was also the image of peace as a long-term goal. And I think that that's something that's still worthwhile turning to. That was Professor Annette Joseph-Gabriel speaking from the University of Michigan. Back in the 1950s and the 1960s, the Soviet Union and China were bitter rivals competing for leadership of the communist movement. One activist that straddled the China-Russia divide was Claudia Jones, a black woman from Trinidad who did much of her most important work in the U.S. Zifeng Li Wu is a doctoral student at Cornell University. He's written a paper 
title, Decolonization is Not a Dinner Party, Claudia Jones, China's Nuclear Weapons and Afro-Asian Solidarity. Lee Wu says Claudia Jones was a political pioneer. First of all, Claudia Jones articulated this concept called super-exploitation of black women. So this actually is a precursor to what we know now as intersectionality. And Claudia Jones was a leader in the Communist Party of the USA. So she was able to push the party to address issues specific to black women, in particular black working class women. And she was persecuted on the Smith Act and was later deported to the UK. So when she was in the UK, she quickly restarted her activism and she founded the Nottingham Carnival, which is still going on in the UK. Many people in London actually still don't know much about her, but everybody knows about the Nottingham Carnival. 1964, she went to China and she saw many Chinese leaders. So she herself had a remarkable life and she made a great contribution to the black radical tradition and black internationalism. Her story actually offered a lot of entry points for us to think about many issues like migration, internationalism, black Marxism, black feminism, and so on. Yes, she became very closely identified with Chinese socialism and linked it to black liberation. Yes. From my research, actually, I've discovered that her politics, her identification with the Chinese government and Chinese communism also evolved over the years. This is actually what Carpoy Davis argues in her book. So she shows that Claudia Jones had a kind of a political and ideological orientation when she was in the UK. So she oriented her work more toward the third world. But even when she was in the Communist Party in the US, her persecution during the McCarthy era actually was widely reported in China. Yes, and this orientation towards the Chinese revolution put her at sometimes a political distance from the Soviets and the Soviet-oriented Western Communist parties. Yes, as we know, the Sino-Soviet split became public in 1959, and that actually created problems for many people in the international communist movement. So Claudia Jones, deviation from the Soviet party line was also in part informed by her experience with the British Communist Party, which was actually very racist at the time. So from my own research, I was able to discover that her kind of identification with the Chinese Communist Party was also related to her conviction in the continuing need to further decolonize and also her frustration with the Soviet Union's policy of peaceful coexistence. Yes, and she wasn't the only black revolutionary in exile at this time. For example, Robert Williams, the former NAACP leader from North Carolina, was bouncing from Cuba to China and taking a third world revolutionary stance as well. Yes, the case with Robert F. Williams was a little bit different because Robert F. Williams didn't really politically come of age in the context of the Communist Party. As we know, he was a leader of the NAACP in Monroe, North Carolina, and then he was later framed and he had to flee the country. So he went to Canada and then Cuba 
and finally China. But when he was in Cuba, he was able to travel to China twice. And I would say those two trips actually were most important for him to really understand China and to identify with China. So one important moment was when Mao Zedong issued a statement in 1963 to support the black freedom struggle in the U.S. And Mao actually did that in response to Robert F. Williams' call for foreign leaders to voice support for black activism. You say and write that Jones refashioned herself as a third world revolutionary, and it appears that she was a precursor to the tendency in the later part of the 1960s of black revolutionaries, and this includes the Black Panther Party, certainly, to identify with Vietnam and Korea, as well as China, and with the armed revolutionary movements in Africa and In Latin America, and not to talk much about the Soviet Union. Yes, this actually had a lot to do with the kind of policy of the Soviet Union towards the Third World compared with China's policy. The Soviet Union in the 1960s wanted to maintain the Cold War status quo by peaceful coexistence with the West, in particular the United States. And the Soviet Union wasn't really as an ardent supporter of. Third world liberation movements as China. And so many black revolutionaries at the time were very impressed with the China stance on the third world. And also because China is a country of pure color, so these people thought that the experience of the Chinese revolution and Mao's own conception of Chinese revolution and Marxism, which in itself is a kind of revision of Marxism, could be of use to black liberation movement. But in fact, especially in the 70s, but also in the 60s, the Soviet Union was giving a great deal of material support to anti-colonial revolutionary movements in Africa and in Latin America. And China often set up counterposed rival organizations that often played a counterproductive role in Africa, in Angola specifically. Yes, that was in the 1970s. The relationship between China and the larger third world actually also evolved with China's changing diplomatic position and also the larger global context. So in 1959, that was actually the end of the first phase of the Cultural Revolution. So the Chinese government decided to... Uh, gradually kind of de-recognize the country, even though this whole process was also filled with tension and contradiction. But in particular, in 1971, Nixon visited China, Kissinger visited China, uh, and that was actually a turning point to show that China had reconfigured its own foreign policy. So in the 1970s, China decided to rejoin the world and also as a way to fight against the Soviet Union. So I would say in the 1970s, China had a kind of reorientation of its foreign policy. And so China supported whatever forces that were against the Soviet Union. That actually was what happened in Angola when China sided with the imperial forces at the time. Yes, quite a turnaround. But of course, Claudia Jones did not live to see that change in policy. Yes. When Claudia Jones was in China, at that point, China actually had already launched its campaign to win the minds of hearts 
of people all, all over the world. And particularly in 1963, with the publication of Mao's statement, so China actually launched a very comprehensive campaign to educate people in China about black radicalism and black history. But the Chinese government also sent news dispatches and publications all over the world to show that the Chinese government cared about the black freedom struggle and wanted to show support to black revolutionaries. So when colleges was in China, that what she saw. So she was very impressed with China's nominal support to the third world. And she was excited to see socialist construction going on in China, and in particular, women's status there. Yes. So when Claudia Jones and Robert Williams and later Black Panthers went to China and to Korea, it was not because they were in desperation, but because there was an open invitation. Yes. So in the case of Claudia Jones, China actually was a part of her Asia trip. So she was first of all in Japan for a conference on the hydrogen atomic bomb, and so. At the conference, she was invited by the Chinese government to travel to China with a Latin American delegation. And in the case of Robert F. Williams, he went to China also with the invitation from the Chinese government. So when Mao actually issued his statement in 1963, the thing was handed to Robert F. Williams by the Chinese ambassador in Cuba. Nowadays, most peace activists would look askance at anyone who hails the explosion of an atomic weapon. But Claudia Jones did praise and acclaim China's achievement of nuclear power. Yes, the issue of nuclear weapons in the Cold War was a kind of rallying point for people from a variety of political positions to really argue for peace. But for Claudia Jones, peace. Had to be established upon true decolonization and liberation. So for Claudia Jones, nuclear weapons in the possession of the third world could actually be useful for the liberation and decolonization of the third world. And she believed that only after the decolonization of the third world was achieved could people actually talk about peace. So I would say Claudia Jones. Also articulated this in the context of Soviet policy of peaceful coexistence, and she was very impressed with the China's position that the third world should actually possess nuclear weapons. So, in this way, I would say we have to understand the larger historical context to understand why Claudia Jones supported China's nuclear weapons program. And another reason why she did that was because she was also deeply impressed with the fact that China. Was able to develop nuclear weapons, so for her that was a kind of manifestation of the success of self-determination and self-reliance, which also shows the kind of possible futures that could be ushered in by third-world nationalism. So Claudia Jones and others were saying on the international scene: no justice, no peace; no third-world liberation, no peace. Yes, exactly, and also China's own insistence on possessing nuclear weapons was also a way to intervene and disrupt the international status quo. Because what the Soviet Union wanted was to maintain the status quo. So for the Soviet Union, instead of a struggle, there should be kind of a peaceful economic competition. But for Claudia Jones and many other revolutionaries at the time, struggle 
was key to decolonization and was key to fostering a new global order. Why don't many folks know the name Claudia Jones? Why isn't her name a household word? Well, there are many reasons. So first of all, she was a Communist Party member and she never left the Communist Party. And as we know, anti-communism still lingers on, but anti-communists destroyed many leftist organizations and also made a lot of people who actually participated in many leftist causes later denounce their connections to the left. And also we know the overlap between anti-communism and anti-racism. And so Claudia Jones, as a black woman, endured sexism, anti-communism, and anti-black racism. And so I would say all these forces contributed to the erasure of her from the public discourse. But also she was deported from the United States. Deportation was also devastating to her work in the U.S. But according to Carlos Davis, Claudia Jones able to refashion herself in the U.K. to continue her work. And she founded the first black newspaper in the U.K. But she died in 1964. After that, she still had a kind of influence in the U.K., but only among the radical people. So I would say the kind of recovering of Claudia Jones is part of our work to really decolonize the academy and to really try to learn more from the black radical tradition to see what we can do to make our world a better place. Yes, in recent years, Claudia Jones has been embraced by black activists, and you characterize her as one of the godmothers of intersectionalism. Yes, definitely. Even though she wasn't really the first person to think intersectionally, what she did in the Communist Party USA and her influence on black feminism was actually very important. So a lot of scholars have shown how the black feminist movements in the 1960s and 1970s were very much formed by the black women from the left, including Claudia Jones. And we can actually see that the kind of black left feminism that Claudia Jones articulated was very much in, for example, the Kambahi River Collective Statement. So I would say Claudia Jones was an important person in fostering what we know as intersectionality. She definitely wasn't the first person to do so. A lot of black women activists before her had articulated similar things, but Claudia Jones definitely had a great influence. The larger project in which Claudia Jones is a central figure is to consider black feminism engaging with the world politics, Afro-Asian solidarity. So what I'm trying to do is also to establish Claudia Jones as a central figure in articulating Afro-Asian solidarity. But also I want to show that the work was very hard and people like Claudia Jones had to navigate the kind of rapid waters in politics. So I showed how she navigated the China-Soviet split and also different, I guess, formations of solidarity. So I want to show that it was hard for people to do that. Another thing that I want to show to a degree black women who talked about solidarity were able to articulate a politics that sometimes might be different from, for example, the Chinese party line. And I have been able to discover that in the case of Claudia Jones, even though she sided with the Chinese Communist Party, she, in her own writing, seems to be reluctant to criticize the Soviet Union because for her, what was important was to really forge a 
global anti-capitalist solidarity. And this actually the same with Shirley Gordon Du Bois as well. So I want to show that the black women were able to insert ideas of black feminism into China, but also they were able to articulate their own independent politics different from the Chinese party line. And they always had their own people, their own struggle in mind. So what I'm trying to do is to show that the black women were not, definitely not, dupes of communism. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.